And welcome into the Bible Reading Podcast, episode number eight. Today we're asking the question, does God actually care about animals or will there be animals in heaven? We're also going to learn from Noah in Genesis 8 how to face hardships like a possible coming war. So today's Bible reading is fairly meaty. Big, important, theologically rich passages in Genesis 8, Ezra 8, Matthew 8, and Acts chapter 8. However, because the last two episodes of the podcast went a little bit long, today's big Bible question is an important one, but it'll be fairly short. Does God care about animals? I suppose a subset to that question, one we mentioned earlier, the one that probably a lot of people ask is, will animals be in heaven? More specifically, will my pet, my dog, my beloved cat, my beloved horse, etc., will they be in heaven? It's a great question, very common biblical question. Before we dive into it, however, let's read our passage for today, Genesis chapter 8. And this is Genesis 8, verse 1, from the Christian Standard Bible. God remembered Noah as well as all the wildlife and all the livestock that were with him in the ark. God caused a wind to pass over the earth, and the water began to subside. The sources of the watery depths and the floodgates of the sky were closed, and the rain from the sky stopped. The water steadily receded from the earth, and by the end of 150 days, the water had decreased significantly. The ark came to rest in the seventh month, on the seventeenth day of the month, on the mountains of Ararat. The water continued to recede until the tenth month. In the tenth month, on the first day of the month, the tops of the mountains were visible. After forty days, Noah opened the window of the ark that he had made. He sent out a raven. It went back and forth until the water had dried up from the earth. Then he sent out a dove to see whether the water on the earth's surface had gone down. But the dove found no resting place for its foot. It returned to him in the ark because water covered the surface of the whole earth. He reached out and brought it into the ark to himself. So Noah waited seven more days and sent out the dove from the ark again. When the dove came to him at evening, there was a plucked olive leaf in its beak. So Noah knew that the water on the earth's surface had gone down. After he'd waited another seven days, he sent out the dove, but it did not return to him again. In the 601st year, in the first month, on the first day of the month, the water that had covered the earth was dried up. Then Noah removed the ark's cover and saw that the surface of the ground was drying. By the 27th day of the second month, the earth was dry. Then God spoke to Noah, Come out of the ark, you, your wife, your sons, and your sons' wives with you. Bring out all the living creatures that are with you, bird, livestock, those that crawl in the earth, and they will spread over the earth and be fruitful and multiply on the earth. So Noah, along with his sons, his wife, and his sons' wives, came out. All the animals, all the creatures that crawl, and all the flying creatures, everything that moves on the earth, came out of the ark by their families. Then Noah built an altar to the Lord. He took some of every kind of clean animal and every kind of clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. When the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, he said to himself, I will never again curse the ground because of human beings, even though the inclination of the human heart is evil from youth onward. And I will never again strike down every living thing as I have done. As long as the earth endures, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, and day and night, 
will not cease. Amen. So that's a great passage and a great promise from God there. Commenting on this passage in a very encouraging way was a gentleman named John Owen in a sermon preached in the 1600s. Now, if you're not familiar with Owen, he's an interesting guy. He was a nonconformist pastor, theologian, and writer, lived in England in the 1600s. He was a member of parliament, and he was also an Oxford academic. He was a bright mind, lover of Jesus, and he had a pretty interesting take on today's Genesis passage and how we might apply it to our lives in 2020. As I write this, as most of you know that are reading, listening to it currently, it looks possible, it's beginning to look kind of likely, that the United States, my home country, might be about to go to war with Iran. Australia is on fire, and there's all sorts of things going on around the world that have people just in a very disquieted, alert, and heavy state of mind. And Owen asks and answers a question you know, almost 400 years ago, about how Christians should live and trust God when going through such dark and difficult times. So his question is, what is our duty with respect to dark and difficult dispensations of God's providence in the world? And this is what he says. Our duty is to hide ourselves. Now, before you think, well, that sounds like putting your head in the sand. That's not what he's saying. Let's hear what he's saying. He says, how shall we hide ourselves? The storm is coming. Get an ark, as Noah did when the flood was coming upon the world, which is stated for a precedent of all judgments in future times. There are two things required to provide an ark, fear and faith. First, fear. By faith, Noah, being moved with fear, prepared an ark. If he had not been moved with the fear of God's judgments, he would have never have provided an ark. It's a real complaint. We are not moved enough with the fear of God's judgments. We talk about dreadful things that can befall human nature. We expect them every day, but yet we're not moved with fear. Yet they were not afraid, said Jeremiah, nor tore their garments, nor do we do so. We don't fear the Lord. Habakkuk, upon the view of God's judgments, was in another frame of mind. In chapter 3, verse 16, we hear, When I heard, said Habakkuk, my belly trembled, my lips quivered at the voice of God, rottenness entered into my bones, and I trembled in myself that I might rest in the day of trouble. Owen continues, This is the way to find rest in the day of God's judgments. Fear of God. The second way we provide an ark is by faith. We cannot well provide an ark for ourselves unless we're guided by faith as well as moved by fear of the Lord. By faith, Noah prepared an ark. How many things have you heard of that encourage faith? The name of God, the properties of God, and the accomplishments of the promise of God. By virtue of all these properties, encourage faith in providing an ark ark. But you will say, we are at a loss what this providing an ark and hiding of ourselves is. Quote, a prudent man foresees the, foresees the evil and hides himself. God calls us to enter into the chamber of providence and hide ourselves till the anger be over and done. If we knew what this was, we should go apply ourselves unto it. Quote, I will tell you what I think in one instance. 
give no quiet to your minds until, by some renewed act of faith, you have a strong and clear impression of the promises of God upon your hearts and your interest in them. If it be but one promise, it will prove an ark. If, under all these seasons, moved with fear, acted by faith, we can get but a renewed sense and pledge of our interest in any one promise of God, we have an ark over us that will endure whatever the storm will be. Think of it, and nothing else occur to you. Apply your minds to it that you may not wander up and down in uncertainties, but endeavor to have a renewed pledge of your interest in some special promise of God that it belongs unto you, and it will be an ark in every time of trouble that shall befall you. Now, that was John Owen almost 400 years ago. And what he's saying is, when God allows dark times of providence to come on the earth, what should Christians do? Well, one, they should fear God because God does judge and he's good, but he is all powerful. But second, they should hide themselves in an ark. And again, He's not meaning to literally hide themselves. He's meaning that we Christians going through difficult times of providence should find a promise of the Lord and wall ourselves up in it. That we not withdraw from society, but we immerse ourselves in the beautiful promises of God and stand on them. Can you think of a promise of God from Scripture that has been an encouragement to you? If you can't, let me tell you where to go look for one. Find one in 1 Corinthians 15. I mean, there look, there's hundreds of them in the Bible, but you can find some wonderful promises of God about the second coming, about the renewal of Jesus, about his resurrection and his resurrection for those who have faith in him. Go to 1 Corinthians, get you a promise of God. And if it so happens that we go to war with Iran or Australia keeps burning or other bad things happen, you shelter in the ark of the promises of God. Now to our question. You probably caught the verse that triggered the question because it was right there at the beginning of Genesis 8. God remembered Noah as well as all the livestock and all the wildlife that were with him in the ark. So, God was thinking about Noah and the wildlife and the livestock in the ark. There are several other indications in Scripture, too, of God's love for animals. One of them is at the very end of the book of Jonah, chapter 4. In that book, God has sent Jonah to Nineveh to carry his message of grace and repentance and mercy. And Jonah says, basically, No, I hate the Ninevites. I hope you burn them down. I'm going the opposite way. But if you remember the story, God basically captures him and forces him to go to the Ninevites with that message of repentance, grace, and mercy. And they listen and they repent of their evil. And Jonah is mad and he sits outside of the city and he wants God to destroy the place, but God won't do it. And he's sitting under a a sweltering hot sun and, and just basically 
frying in his own anger and in the hot sun, and God causes a lovely shade plant to spring up during the day and give Jonah lots of shade. And Jonah loves the shade plant. Then it dies the next day. And Jonah is mad because God allowed the plant to die. Verse 9, then God asked Jonah, is it right for you to be angry about the plant? Yes, it's right, he replied. I'm angry enough to die. So the Lord said, you cared about the plant, which you did not work over and did not grow. It appeared in a night and perished in a night. But may I not care about the great city of Nineveh, which has more than a 120,000 people who cannot distinguish between their right and their left hands as well as many animals? What a powerful testimony of the character of God. He loves the animals of Nineveh. He loves the people of Nineveh, even though they are not following him. What about Psalms 36, 6? Your righteousness is like the highest mountains. Your judgments like the deepest seas. Lord, you preserve people and animals. Or how about Psalm 104, 14 and 15? He causes grass to grow for the livestock and provides crops for man to cultivate, producing food from the earth. Wine that makes human hearts glad, making his face shine with oil and bread that sustains human hearts. So there you go. God causes grass to grow for the livestock. He takes care of them. What about Matthew 10, 28 through 31? This is where Jesus says, Don't fear those who kill the body, but are not able to kill the soul. Rather, fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. Aren't two sparrows sold for a penny? Yet not one of them falls to the ground without your father's consent. But even the hairs of your head have all been accounted. So don't be afraid. You are worth more than many sparrows. So yeah, God cares about animals. He watches over them. God knows when animals die and cultivates the earth to preserve their lives. We might also mention um, passages like Proverbs 12.10 here. Whoever is righteous has regard for the life of his beast, but the mercy of the wicked is cruel. Could animals have eternal life? Could my dog Missy, who died when I was... About 14, could I reunite with Missy somehow, some way in heaven? I love that dog. It was the best dog in the world. That's a different question entirely. We're going to spend more time on that in a future episode when we go through the book of Isaiah. But for now, we do know for sure that there are horses in heaven, at least I think we do, because multiple times in the book of Revelation, we see people riding horses, including Revelation 19, when Jesus returns on a horse. Also, Isaiah 6 gives us a tantalizing idea that eternity on the new heavens and the new earth will indeed have animals. The wolf shall dwell with the lamb, and the leopard shall lie down with the young goat, and the calf and the lion and the fattened calf together, and a little child will lead them. The cow and the bear will graze, their young shall lie down together, and the lion shall eat straw like the ox." The nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra, and the weaned child should put his hand on the adder's den. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Now, Isaiah 6 is talking about 
this what's going to happen after the second coming it's talking about eternity it's talking about what's going to happen after the great day of the lord or the great and terrible day of the lord as to what joel calls it so will there be animals in eternity it appears so will our pets be resurrected in eternity well i'm afraid i have to stand with uh, the writer of ecclesiastes on that question and he his answer is basically Who knows what happens to the soul of an animal? Does it go down? We don't know. I don't know. Good question. Well, more on that later. Now let's get into the rest of our reading. Ezra chapter 8 verse 1. Brace yourselves for several names coming up. Ezra likes to throw a lot of names at us. These are the family heads and the genealogical records of those who returned with me from Babylon during the reign of King Artaxerxes. Gershom, from Phineas's descendants. Daniel, from Ithamar's descendants. Hattush, from David's descendants, who was of Shechaniah's descendants. Zechariah, from Parash's descendants. And 150 men with him who were registered by genealogy. Elihonai, son of Zerahiah from Pehath Moab's descendants, and 200 men with him. Shechaniah, son of Jehaziel, from Zatu's descendants, and 300 men with him. Ebed, son of Jonathan, from Aden's descendants, and 50 men with him. Josiah, son of Athaliah, from Elam's descendants, and 70 men with him. Zebediah, son of Michael, from Shephatiah's descendants, and 80 men with him. Obadiah, son of Jehiel, from Joab's descendants, and 218 men with him. Shelomith, son of Josephiah, from Bani's descendants, and 160 men with him. Zechariah, son of Bebai, from Bebai's descendants, and 28 men with him. Yohanan, son of Hakatan, or Hakatan, from Asgad's descendants, and 110 men with him. Those are the last ones from Adonikim's descendants, and their names are Eliphilet, Jeuel, and Shemaiah, and 60 men with them. Uthai and Zakur from Bigvi's descendants, and 70 men with them. I gathered them at the river that flows to Ahava, and we camped there for three days. I searched among the people and priests, but found no Levites there. Then I summoned the leaders, Eleazar, Ariel, Shemaiah, El Nathan, Jerib, El Nathan, Nathan, Zechariah, and Meshulam, as well as the teachers Joyarib and El Nathan. There's three El Nathans there. I sent them to Ido, the leader at Casiphia, with a message for him and his brothers, the temple servants at Casiphia, that they should bring us ministers for the house of God, since the gracious hand of our God was on us. They brought us Sherebiah a man of insight from the descendants of Machli, a descendant of Levi, son of Israel, along with his sons and brothers, 18 men, plus plus Hashabiah, along with Jesiah from the descendants of Merari and his brothers and their sons, 20 men. There were also 220 of the temple servants who had been appointed by David and the leaders for the work of the Levites. All were identified by name. I proclaimed a fast, 
by the Ahava River so that we might humble ourselves before our God and ask him for a safe journey for us, for our dependents and all our possessions. I did this because I was ashamed to ask the king for infantry and cavalry to protect us from enemies during the journey, since we had told him, The hand of our God is gracious to all who seek him, but his fierce anger is against all who abandon him. So we fasted and we pleaded with our God about this, and he was receptive to our prayer. I selected twelve of the leading priests, along with Sherebiah, Hashabiah, and ten of their brothers. I weighed them out with the silver, the gold, and the articles, the contribution for the house of our God that the king, his counselors, his leaders, and all the Israelites who were present had offered. I weighed out to them 24 tons of silver, silver articles weighing 7,500 pounds, 7,500 pounds of gold, 20 gold bowls worth a 1,000 gold coins, and two articles of fine gleaming bronze as valuable as gold. Then I said to them, You are holy to the Lord, and the articles are holy. The silver and gold are a free will offering to the Lord God of your fathers. Guard them carefully until you weigh them out in the chambers of the Lord's house. Before the leading priests, Levites, and heads of the Israelite families in Jerusalem, so the priests and Levites took charge of the silver, the gold, and the articles that had been weighed out to bring them to the house of our God in Jerusalem. We set out from the Ahava River on the twelfth day of the first month to go to Jerusalem. We were strengthened by our God, and he kept us from the grasp of the enemy and from ambush along the way. So we arrived at Jerusalem and rested there for three days. On the fourth day, the silver, the gold, and the articles were weighed out in the house of our God into the care of the priest Merimoth, son of Uriah. Eleazar, son of Phinehas, was with him. The Levites, Jazabad, son of Jeshua, and Noadiah, son of Benui, were also with him. Everything was verified by number and weight, and the total weight was recorded at that time. The exiles who had returned from the captivity offered burnt offerings to the God of Israel, twelve bulls for all Israel, ninety-six rams, and seventy-seven lambs, along with twelve male goats as a sin offering. All this was a burnt offering for the Lord. They also delivered the king's edicts to the royal satraps and governors of the region west of the Euphrates so that they would support the people and the house of God. Now, (laughs) there's obviously so many names in that passage. And, and, you know, this is great for a scholar, but it makes the Bible reading more difficult. But if you skip over chapters like this, you miss beautiful nuggets of truth like Ezra thinking, oh my gosh, we're about to carry literally tons of gold and precious jewels and silver across a long journey to Jerusalem. And I can't ask for a military guard to go with this because I've already told the Lord. I mean, I've already told the king that the Lord would protect us. So what do they do? How do they handle that? And the answer is they pleaded with God. they fasted and pleaded with our God about this, and he was receptive to our prayer, and God protected them better than any infantry or bodyguard could. That's an encouraging thing to read, and I believe many of us can apply that to our lives. All right, Matthew 8, verse 1. When Jesus came down from the mountain, large crowds followed him. Right away, a man with leprosy came up and knelt before him, saying, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. 
Reaching out his hand, Jesus touched him, saying, I am willing, be made clean. Immediately his leprosy was cleansed. Then Jesus told him, See that you don't tell anyone, but go, show yourself to the priest, and offer the gift that Moses commanded as a testimony to them. When he entered Capernaum, a centurion came to him, pleading with him, Lord, my servant is lying at home, paralyzed in terrible agony. Jesus said to him, Am I to come and heal him? Lord, the centurion replied, I'm not worthy to have you come under my roof, but just say the word and my servant will be healed. For I too am a man under authority, having soldiers under my command. I say to this one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes. And to my servant, do this, and he does it. Hearing this, Jesus was amazed and said to those following him, Truly, I tell you, I have not found anyone in Israel with so great a faith. I tell you that many will come from east and west to share the banquet with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven, but the sons of the kingdom will be thrown into outer darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then Jesus told the centurion, Go, as you have believed, let it be done for you. And his servant was healed that very moment. Jesus went into Peter's house and saw his mother-in-law lying in bed with a fever, so he touched her hand, and the fever left her. Then she got up and began to serve him. When evening came, they brought to him many who were demon-possessed, and he drove out the spirits with a word and healed all who were sick, so that what was spoken through the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. He himself took our weaknesses and carried our diseases. When Jesus saw a large crowd around him, he gave the order to go to the other side of the sea. A scribe approached him and said, Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. But Jesus told him, Foxes have dens and birds of the sky have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to raise his head. Lord, another of his disciples said, First let me go bury my father. But Jesus told him, Follow me and let the dead bury their own dead. As he got into the boat, his disciples followed him. Suddenly, a violent storm arose on the sea, so that the boat was being swamped by the waves. But Jesus kept sleeping. So the disciples came and woke him up, saying, Lord, save us, we're going to die. And he said to them, Why are you afraid, you of little faith? Then he got up and rebuked the winds and the sea, and there was a great calm. And the men were amazed and asked, What kind of man is this? Even the winds and the sea obey him. Then he had come to the other side, to the region of the Gadarenes. Two demon-possessed men met him as they came out of the tombs. They were so violent that no one could pass that way. Suddenly they shouted, What do you have to do with us, son of God? Have you come here to torment us before the time? A long way off from them, a large herd of pigs was feeding. If you drive us out, the demons begged, send us into those herd of pigs. Go, he told them. So when they had come out, they entered the pigs, and the whole herd rushed down the steep bank into the sea and perished in the water. Then the men who tended them fled. They went into the city and reported everything, especially what had happened to those who were demon-possessed. At that, the whole town went out to meet Jesus. When they saw him, they begged him to leave their region. What a tragedy. Acts chapter 8, verse 1 in the Christian Standard Bible. 
Saul agreed with putting Stephen to death. On that day, a severe persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem, and all except the apostles were scattered throughout the land of Judea and Samaria. Devout men buried Stephen and mourned deeply over him. Saul, however, was ravaging the church. He would enter house after house, drag off men and women, and put them in prison. So those who were scattered went on their way preaching the word. Philip went down to a city in Samaria and proclaimed the Messiah to them. The crowds were all paying attention to what Philip said as they listened and saw the signs he was performing. For unclean spirits crying out with a loud voice came out of many who were possessed, and many who were paralyzed and lame were healed. So there was great joy in that city. A man named Simon had previously practiced sorcery in the city and amazed the Samaritan people while claiming to be somebody great. They all paid attention to him from the least of them to the greatest, and they said, This man is called the great power of God. They were attentive to him because he had amazed them with his sorceries for a long time. But when they believed Philip, as he proclaimed the good news about the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ, both men and women were baptized. Even Simon himself believed. And after he was baptized, he followed Philip everywhere and was amazed as he observed the signs and the great miracles that were being performed. When the apostles who were in Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent Peter and John to them. After they went down there, they prayed for them so that the Samaritans might receive the Holy Spirit because he had not yet come down on any of them. They had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then Peter and John laid their hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. When Simon saw that the Spirit was given through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money, saying, Give me this power also, so that anyone I lay hands on may receive the Holy Spirit. But Peter told him, May your silver be destroyed with you, because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. You have no part or share in this matter, because your heart is not right before God. Therefore repent of this wickedness of yours, and pray to the Lord that, if possible, your heart's intent may be forgiven. For I see you are poisoned by bitterness and bound by wickedness. Pray to the Lord for me, Simon replied, so that nothing you have said may happen to me. So after they had testified and spoken the word of the Lord, they traveled back to Jerusalem, preaching the gospel in many villages of the Samaritans. And an angel of the Lord spoke to Philip, get up and go south to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is the desert road. So he got up and went. There was an Ethiopian man, a eunuch and high official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of her entire treasury. He had come to worship in Jerusalem and was sitting in his chariot on the way home, reading the prophet Isaiah out loud. And the spirit told Philip, go and join that chariot. When Philip ran up to it, he heard him reading the prophet Isaiah and said, do you understand what you're reading? How can I, he said, unless someone guides me? So he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. Now the scripture passage he was reading was this. He was led like a sheep to the slaughter. And as a lamb is silent before its shearer, so he does not open his mouth. In his humiliation, justice was denied him. Who will describe his generation? For his life is taken from the earth. 
The eunuch said to Philip, I ask you, who is the prophet saying this about, himself or someone else? Philip proceeded to tell him the good news about Jesus, beginning with that scripture. As they were traveling down the road, they came to some water, and the eunuch said, Look, here's water. What should keep me from being baptized? So he ordered the chariot to stop, and both Philip and the eunuch went down into the water, and he baptized him. When they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord carried Philip away, and the eunuch did not see him any longer, but he went on his way rejoicing. Philip appeared in Azotus, and as he, and he was traveling and preaching the gospel in all the towns until he came to Caesarea. Amen. What a great passage to end on. Well, I hope today's podcast was edifying and encouraging and challenging for you. I know that every moment I spend listening to the Word of God, reading the Word of God, thinking about the Word of God, and following the Word of God is fruitful, and it's about the best thing I could be doing. So you're not wasting your time with this. You are doing the right thing. You are investing your time well, and I appreciate that we're spending it together in the Word of God. Until tomorrow, Godspeed.